Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No! Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Todd Masters has asked us to review Voices. Released March 14th, Pi Day, 1979, it was written by John Hertzfeld, directed by Robert Markowitz, and released by United Artists. <laughs> <laughs> Are you smiling at me? Because <laughs> I was like, like Don Hertzfeld. Don Hertzfeld. No, John. Oh, John Hertzfeld. <laughs> I am a banana. My spoon is too big. I am the queen of France. Perfect. The filmmaker supposedly spent six months scouring the country for a deaf actress to cast as Rosemarie Lemon. And as you may have noticed, they settled on hearing actress Amy Irving. <laughs> who spent several weeks prior to the shoot learning sign language with a consultant. Quite predictably, a deaf advocacy group operating under the title Coalition Against Voices orchestrated a boycott of the film's early release across the Bay Area. Their picketing forced MGM to cancel many showings. Beyond casting Irving in the part of the central deaf character, they took issue with the film's reliance on deaf stereotypes and an insanely short-sighted absence of subtitles for the film's national release. <laughs> Their protests were in part contradicted by the San Francisco Hearing Society, another deaf advocacy group, but a bit of a misnomer if you ask me. <laughs> Hearing Society? <laughs> they opposed the boycotts in support of the film for the sake of much-needed representation on the big screen. MGM quelled the larger protests by promising a limited release of captioned prints, and just days into the captioned run, they were canceled, citing lackluster attendance. Do you guys recall the last film we discussed to ever screen with subtitles for a hearing-impaired audience? It actually did a national release. Oh, um, Amy? Amy. Disney's Amy. That's correct. I definitely side with the protests here. Yeah. In well, which protest? Oh, not, not the protest. The against, against the, the protest. Film. No, against the film. I just, like, the whole point of the film yeah. is that you're deaf you could do anything and, and then like, but act but, as, but you definitely can't, can't act in this character. film don't no you can't even yeah you can't even represent yourself on screen right well i was, I was looking i was like spending this time kind of looking up when uh when marley matlin like kind of came yeah. into the limelight and it was after this so like she wouldn't have been well known but uh i was just trying to think of like like a a a more famous person. On a budget of $4 million, Voices made a quarter million back. We start with opening credits over black and the voices of a family of men arguing about betting on horses and money missing from a wallet. Hey, Raymond, there was money in this wallet. Will you please? I didn't take your $10. Well, how'd you know how much money was in Will the you wallet? you shut up? I'm trying to hear the radio. Then the voice of a grandfather character questions a teenaged grandson on a dirty magazine he found in his room. Picture starts with grandfather Nathan Rothman, father Frank played by Alex Rocco, and grandsons Drew and Raymond, played by Michael Ontkeen and Barry Miller, respectively. Frank is telling his son Drew that he's too picky about women. When Frank stops to make a bet with a guy on a bench, Raymond tries to corral his grandfather into signing his shitty report card to hide his grades from dad. 
Drew makes his brother promise to meet up with him after school. We cut to Drew singing in a voiceograph booth, a personal recording studio, on the mezzanine of a large train station. But I will always wait for you. Out the window, he watches a young girl using a coin press machine downstairs, and somehow she senses him and looks up to watch the rest of the song. He closes his eyes to bow to her, and when he opens them, she's gone. He runs to the machine she abandoned and pulls the lever to eject the coin she was pressing custom letters into, and it says Rosemary Lemon around the edge of the coin. Why would she not take her coin? Because she ran out of time. No, because she the guy the closed train his eyes. Come in. She can't hear anything. It's rolling round the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. Well, and he also doesn't grab his record as he runs out. But he doesn't has he? A, well he doesn't grab it at this moment but he has oh, okay. it he has it in the next scene maybe like, they well, both hate collecting the discs that they paid for <laughs> something they have in common wow so much drew heads to the offices of talent manager montrose meyer with the track he just recorded in the booth a secretary tells him to wait but drew barges into the office and makes the man listen to his hastily recorded demo the man eventually agrees to listen, but spends most of the track talking with someone else over the phone and comes back at the end to tell Drew he's not interested. He only deals with people who have some level of fame to begin with, like last year's Mr. Transit Authority. He's steak and I'm hamburger. Is that what you're saying? Hamburgers are an American staple. Look, McDonald's. We cut across town where young Raymond is standing in the road with a bunch of other teens in letterman jackets with the gladiators embroidered across the back. They have blocked the street with trash cans and banged the lids together as they swing around what appear to be sticks with forks taped to them. <laughs> when a car approaches, they ask for an unofficial toll or threaten to damage the vehicle. How'd you like a nice long deep scratch right down the center of your hood? One, two, pay them, Bobby. And the first couple they encounter eventually pays their way through, but right as the car drives on, Drew comes skidding up in the family van and Raymond makes a run for it to avoid Big Brother's wrath. That night, the family all argue about how to solve the problem. Dad yells a lot, and Grandpa says to stop yelling at his kids, but he's also kind of yelling. Drew blames a lack of protein and stacks up all the pizza they were eating and throws it in the trash like an asshole. Then, instead of replacing the food he just destroyed, he's like, anyway, I'm off to work, and fucking <laughs> leaves. It's like, dude, we were eating that pizza you threw it away and none of us got upset? I don't understand this scene. We cut to a strip club where Drew is performing with a full band on stage. At the end of the first song, the dancer is called off stage to speak with the manager, who asks her to go topless and bottomless, and she is not interested. When Drew notices the argument escalating, he tries to intervene, but the man is insistent, and the dancer quits. So Drew follows her out. Hey you! Get back up there and start playing! You what? The band quits. We're not working in a meat joint. As much as I respect this dancer's autonomy, it does seem a little funny that Drew had no problem working in a topless strip club, but thinks that it's way beneath him to work in a bottomless strip club. <laughs> like, still a strip club, dude. He also, like, still a meat joint, yeah. <laughs> whether or not you can see all of the loins. <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, he uh, doesn't consult his band at all. Right, he quits. We all them. quit. <laughs> yeah. 
Later, Drew learns from Raymond that he's in debt to some dangerous people. For how much? A lot of money. How much? A hundred dollars, all right? A hundred dollars? He kept raising. I thought the hundred dollars, like, saying it in a surprised voice meant, that's not that much money. But, <laughs> but it meant, like, holy crap, that's too much. Well, considering he just got accused of stealing $10, it's like, well, you're a tenth of the way there. Right. Just, what's what's the problem? And and I guess that's, like, 420-something now. So, it's like, it's a, it's a chunk of change. He tells Raymond not to pay the bullies and that they'll talk about it later. Drew notices Rosemary and tries to hit on her as she boards a bus, but she doesn't respond. He notices the bus driver signing to her, and after the doors close, he chases the vehicle to the next stop. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone chase a bus to speak with someone? Oh, um... They were leaving town. Yeah, 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 yeah. As the girl on the bus, and then... Richard recognized the neighborhood where the bus was driving. What was that movie? Full moon high. That's right. Drew boards the bus with enough money to ride one more stop down the line, and he tries again to speak with Rosemary. Or Rosemary. I feel like he says Rosemary. Mm. I also would feel like he would have like a a bus pass or something. Like, But he's got his van. He's got a van. That's true. And he gets to drive it all the time. It's the business vehicle. Right. He returns the coin she left in the machine at the train station. An annoying kid with a radio is blasting music for a moment, and then it all fades out as Drew tries to put himself in Rosemary's position. He follows her off the bus to the school where she works, and she invites him through the gate to see where she teaches children. He tries to tell her why he was recording in the booth earlier, and she says he needs to talk slower for her to read his lips. Someone stole my tape recorder, so I made one of those records and took it to an agent so he could hear my voice. Rosemary heads into the school and waves for Drew to follow her inside. But this is like all he's managed to say to her right. so far because That's they didn't really have a conversation. Her. I'm like, this seems like a really weird thing to lead with. Yeah, I It's agree. totally irrelevant. Yeah. Anyway, so what did you say your name was? <laughs> why are you following me? <laughs> Drew quickly realizes this is a school for the deaf when he finds a room full of adults using sign language back and forth. Also, a big sign out front. He didn't read that, though. He seems shocked by it when he comes in. We cut to the family's red van pulling up to a building, and Drew steps inside. I'm here to pick up the laundry. Follow me. He's led through the building to a gangster-type character named Pinky, whose brother Raymond owes money to. At first, I thought laundry was a euphemism for paying back his brother's debt, but he's literally here to collect laundry. Oh, I 100% thought it was laundering money. Even Mm -hmm. after he picked up the laundry, I was like, but those shirts are like stuffed with money, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. But he's literally here primarily to collect laundry. But I was so sure when he was like, I'm here for the laundry, it's like, this is the password to get to the guy who your brother owes money to. Drew tells Pinky that their little brothers are having a disagreement, and he says for Pinky to tell his brother that the deal is off, which obviously won't work because in 1979, 100 bucks is worth some money and you wouldn't just write it off for no reason because the guy's brother said so. I mean, I, I guess it depends. I mean, like, if you're mob to mob member, maybe. Maybe. But, yeah, if if one guy leads a, a gang and the other guy drives a van for uh, dry cleaners, then I would say no. He has no say in what's going to happen between these two. Yeah, I definitely thought he was in deeper in this ring than yeah. he ever ends up right. being. right. Or, you know, you give like a, you know, quid pro quo here. Like, it's like, tell him to call off the debt and I'll, you know, do such and such for it. I don't even understand calling off the debt. It's like, if you owe the money, then you pay the money. Maybe you take time to do it. Maybe you ask for extensions, but 
You just, you have to pay the money. Sorry, you lost the money to someone. But they killed him anyway. <laughs> so he's it just doesn't dead. seem fair to me. <laughs> you know what I don't understand? They break your legs, you still owe them the money. Pinky and Drew walk together to visit Mr. Patterson, the man who owns this entire building and the one that houses the strip club Drew used to work at. Patterson is finishing the interior of a new club and Drew offers up his band to audition for the in-house music because he also accepts jobs on behalf of the whole band. <laughs> yeah, this this place looks like it's going to be a terrible club. Right. The ceilings are so low. Yeah. <laughs> it's like this is an office. This is clearly like an office like, it's not going to be a good club. Later, as Drew drives across the bridge with a van full of laundry, he fantasizes about performing at a glittery piano on a fancy stage in front of a crowd. The performance is intercut with Drew delivering the laundry to the dry cleaning operation that his father manages. In the fantasy concert, Rosemary waits in the stands, smiling in a crowd of cheering fans. We cut away to reality as Rosemary and another man sign to each other in the front seat of a car and then lean in for a kiss before she climbs out and walks through the gate at her school. Drew is waiting here for her just inside the gate like a creeper because he claims he was in the neighborhood. He asks her out on several dates in a row and she politely turns him down each time. He eventually gets her to make a deal. She writes down her address and he says he'll ring the bell. If she wants to go on a date, she can answer the door and if she doesn't, that's fine too. I do appreciate for a movie from 1979 that they picked an African-American man to be... To play this landlord character. Yeah, to be this business mogul that owns all these buildings and is, you know, directing all this stuff around him. Like, that's that's a surprisingly good choice in this movie that didn't have a lot of great choices in it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Back at home later, we see Drew has purchased or borrowed a book to learn sign language and teaches himself a few key phrases. Coffee is good. How was your day? Coffee is good. How was your day? Raymond overhears the practice, and Drew for some reason finds it necessary to pretend he was just writing a song. The coffee is good. How was your day? How was your day? It's about as good as the other songs. <laughs> Yeah, like, what, what, what is the benefit of keeping this a secret? There's no point. Later, we see Rosemary holding a cat in her apartment and waiting for the bell to ring. Outside, Drew pulls up, and a random dog is just wandering in the street as he tries to park his car. At least this actor slows the vehicle down like I would in this situation. Most of these movies, people just trust dogs to get out of the way, and it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, you don't see the takes where the dog got hit. Yeah. (laughs) The dog is clearly not supposed to be a part of the scene, so they wouldn't bring multiple dogs to set so they could hit one in the first three takes. He rings the bell outside her house, which causes the lights in her home to flicker, and she answers the door before he gifts her a single rose. Rose Marie. She gets the flower and water right away. She's pouring him a cup of coffee when her phone rings and causes more lights to blink. She places the receiver in a special cradle, which presents the words on the screen of a typewriter. Someone is asking her to a movie tonight. It's her boyfriend, Scott, and she tells him that she's busy. At the end of the meal, Drew signs to Rosemary that the coffee is good. She is flattered and impressed with his quick progress. He asks the sign for delicious, and she touches her middle fingers to her lips and then holds them down in her palms. Rosemary's mother suddenly appears and is immediately upset at this pairing. Drew tries to put his best foot forward, but the lady gets very snooty about every detail of his life. 
Rosemary's mother signs to her that Drew works a dry cleaners and he only aspires to be a professional singer. She also takes it upon herself to inform Drew of Rosemary's boyfriend, Scott, in the hopes that it will end this relationship now. Rosemary is shocked and embarrassed that her mother has shared this detail with her new boyfriend and she walks Drew out the door. Drew and Rosemary go to a local diner where Drew's ex-girlfriend Debbie works. That seems like reason enough to never enter this place. Yeah. With a new girlfriend? Debbie reacts as though Drew has brought her here to embarrass her. When she's looking away, Rosemary doesn't know Debbie is asking for her order, and it looks to Debbie like she's being rude. Drew doesn't bother to explain it because he thinks it's funny, I guess? Yeah. It's like, why wouldn't you just say, oh, she can't hear you unless you're looking at her lips. She's deaf. Just say that, and then you end the awkwardness of this scene. Drew breaks up the date abruptly when a table full of old men keep making loud noises behind him. On the way back home, Drew pulls over and asks how much of his words are actually getting through to her, and she admits that she's missing about half of what he says. He drops off Rosemary at home and asks how to say goodbye in sign language. It looks like a fairly permanent drop-off, and Rosemary assures him this will not work out between them. When Drew tries to change her mind about ending things, she runs into the house and cries behind the closed door. It's the first time we actually hear a sound from her. And every time I heard you watching the movie or you heard me watching the movie, we thought one of the kids was having a nightmare. (laughs) At home, Drew pokes at a piano and flashes back on his relationship with Rosemary. We cut back to the family dry cleaners where Grandpa is fitting a customer for a suit when a man named String wanders in, claiming he has a hot tip on a horse race. He's here to sell the tip to Drew's father, Frank. He says he overheard two guys chatting at a urinal about, or probably two urinals, (laughs) (laughs) chatting about an upcoming race. Don't cross the streams. (laughs) A banana race at Oakwood. A banana race, sure. I swear, my mother's grave. I heard it with my own two ears. I looked up a banana race. (laughs) No fucking idea what that's supposed to mean. Go banana. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that's supposed to... I mean, in the context of the film, it means a horse that's juiced up and will definitely win. But there, I couldn't find any indication that that's a real phrase online. String apparently sold his car just to place a big bet on the race. He wants 50 bucks just for the horse's name. He promises they can murder him all sorts of ways if they lose money on the deal, and we cut to Drew's father, Frank, coming out of a bank with a big wad of cash, like an idiot comes out of a bank. <laughs> Put this shit in your pocket, dumb. Yeah. We cut to the racetrack and Frank's horse Sleepwalker is out front for most of the race. Just before the end, Sleepwalker turns and jumps over the railing off the track and Grandpa suggests that they overdoped the horse and it went crazy. Turns out Dad lost $3,000 on the race and Drew is furious to see Raymond's college education gambled away just like his probably was. Drew and Frank fight over the radio music until Drew tears the knob off the radio with the volume all the way up. They fight about it, and then Frank kicks Drew out of the car to walk home. Frank and Grandpa are home alone when Raymond walks in looking like he just got his ass kicked. Drew was supposed to meet up with him after school, but he didn't get there in time because they left him on the side of the road. The family drives back to pick up Drew, and then they head over to the guys who beat up Raymond for not paying his debts. Which, for the record, is what you're supposed to do to people who lose money to you that they don't have. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to beat them up. Drew, Frank, and Nathan all beat the crap out of three guys in a shed playing cards. 
They aren't owed any money or anything, so they have nothing to take, and the attack is over when they get one of the guys to call himself a punk. And then they just hang out at this same shack all night for yeah, some reason. I, I guess like a, just like as an act of uh, like defiance. No, well, <laughs> not an act of defiance, but uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Territorial. Yeah, like like this is ours now. Yeah, this is our shack. <laughs> Capture the flag. Capture the shack. But I do like that the grandpa gets in. Like that he's it, part of the fight. Yeah, he's, he's like, got like a pitchfork to the guy's neck. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's he's like you know we're a family. We do this together. Yeah. They skip rocks across the water beside a campfire. Back at home the next day, Drew tries to teach himself more sign language with the book, specifically spelling out rose with his hands. When he leaves the book unattended, Raymond finds it and reads a little. We see Drew tucking earplugs into his ears, and he can't hear Grandpa calling for him, and drives away in the middle of a conversation. We cut immediately to a family meeting where they've concluded that he's going deaf based on the book and the lack of responses. When Drew joins the breakfast table, we get a slapsticky scene of everyone shouting at him until he finally notices. They're expecting a big crowd, aren't they? Hey, I'm right here. What did you say? I said I'm right here. What are you yelling at? Who's yelling? What the hell are you screaming at? Nobody's screaming. You having trouble with your ears? Am I having what? Trouble! With your ears. He finally admits that the problem is not his, it's Rosemary's, and everyone has a good laugh about it. This feels like something that would ordinarily go on for like four or five scenes. Yeah. But it just happened in three shots. Where it's like, he sees the book, he sees the earplugs, now we're all yelling at each other over breakfast. Raymond asks why Rosemary doesn't talk, and somehow it's never occurred to Drew to ask. We cut to Rosemary entertaining a class of students with dances acting out their day, Drew just walks in and watches until she notices him. He signs to her and then says the words out loud for our benefit. I missed you. The class urges Rosemary to dance to a song by herself. It's a very quiet song, so I have no idea how Rosemary is keeping time with it and mouthing all the words without hearing the track. Drew is so impressed by the performance that he tells her that she should dance professionally. I, I mean, the only thing I could think of is that this is a song she knew before she lost her hearing. There's no way that you would know a song that well that you could keep pace with it perfectly the whole time why even mm. put a record on if th this room is is all deaf people oh my god <laughs> <laughs> later he asks if she was born deaf but she signs that she had a fever from measles as a six-year-old and lost her hearing he asks what kind of kid she was but he wants to hear her answer with her voice and she hesitates lightning from an approaching storm crackles in the sky hey don't don't good I don't care what you sound like. What I care about is you. Then why did you make me talk? Yeah, this seemed really kind of, I don't know if the word rude applies, yeah. but it's just like, it's like, I know you can talk, so talk. Yeah. It's like, I don't talk because it, I'm embarrassed about my lack of ability to understand exactly what I'm saying because yeah. I can't hear it. And he's like, I don't care. I just love you. And it's like, if you loved me, then you would care that that bothers me. And yeah. You wouldn't make mm -hmm. me do it. The music on the score is the instrumental of the song he recorded in the booth earlier. They run through the rain to his place where they find Grandpa asleep in a chair in the living room. Drew rushes Grandpa off to bed and then goes to his room to change into dry clothes. When he returns, he finds Rosemary playing with a music box. They start to kiss, but Drew is distracted by the sound of Raymond dropping a carton of milk in the kitchen. And he seems like drugged up or something. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why he couldn't handle spilling milk by himself. Yeah. He's older than eight, I would say. It seems like the character's supposed to be older than an eight-year-old. He should know how paper towels work. He should be fine. 
Again, Drew orders a family member back to bed, but Raymond wants to meet Rosemary, and suddenly the entire family shows up to talk to her. Even Drew's father Frank shows up when he's carried in drunk by a friend named Helen. Rosemary helps Raymond clean up the milk while chaos unfolds into the house. We cut to Drew walking Rosemary to her door the next day, and we find her mother inside waiting for her. Mom continues to sing the praises of Rosemary's ex-boyfriend, Scott. You two have so much in common. All we have in common is one deaf. That's not enough. Mom is weirdly insistent that Rosemary date someone deaf. She says that Rosemary has no idea how hard it is to live with a deaf person, so she shouldn't put a hearing person through it. She claims Drew will leave her for sure, but Scott wouldn't judge her for it. Then, right on the heels of explaining what a life-crushing chore it is to share a house with her, Mom claims to love Rosemary. We cut to Drew's dad on the phone with a bookie looking to collect some debt on the horse race loss. It sounds like he borrowed from more than the bank to put up a wager. Drew walks up behind him, and I wanted him to just take the phone and say, Look, my dad doesn't owe anything anymore, so just drop it, or me and my grandpa are going to roll up on you and make you admit your punks, and then hang up the phone. He tries to talk to his dad, but dad just wanders out of the dry cleaners. Drew takes his questions to grandpa. He wants advice on if it's crazy to date a deaf girl. Drew points out that she can't understand him if she can't see his lips moving, and grandpa says, look at her when you talk to her. <laughs> Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Yeah. Doc, it hurts when I do this. <laughs> Don't do that. He seems to sell Drew on the girl by offering the blessings of Drew's dead mother. Your mother would have liked Rosemary for you. We get a silent montage of Rosemary and Drew on a series of dates. Drew walks her to a theater auditioning dancers. She's hesitant to register, but Drew pushes her to give it a shot. Rosemary thinks she has no business auditioning for a non-deaf dance company. Drew suggests that they could point their speakers at the floor so she could feel the vibrations of the music to dance to. He confesses that he too was scared to pursue his dream, especially when his family tried to talk him out of it, but things are finally working out for him. She should at least try and at worst fail. She stops him mid-lecture because he's ranting too quickly. What I'm saying is be a dancer if it's what you want. He promises to always be there to support her in this pursuit, and then we cut right to him at home, late meeting up with her already. When the phone rings, it's Grandpa Nate, and Drew's father is trying to burn down the dry cleaners for insurance money. I would say less trying to burn down and more successfully, successfully burning, burning down. down. You're definitely not going to get it if you burn it down in broad daylight and you're standing out in front of it as it's on fire. Rosemary arrives alone to the dance auditions and can't hear the people instructing dancers on how to sign up for the auditions in the first place, but eventually she figures that part out. Whenever the camera shows us her POV, the audio cuts out so we understand how little she's getting from the scene. Rosemary takes the stage and a group of dancers trying out. She can't hear the instructor, but tries to read his lips. Unfortunately, the last thing he says, facing away from her, is pretty important. Now remember, I have different steps, so don't follow me. Drew and Raymond arrive at the dry cleaners to put out the fire and save their father. Rosemary performs her audition, but she can't hear the music, so she's constantly offbeat, and then makes larger mistakes when she follows the choreographer's moves instead of those of her fellow dancers. The people judging the auditions invite her to try out with the next group if she needs time, but Rosemary doesn't hear it because, as I've mentioned before, she is a deaf person. Eventually, Rosemary's mistakes are so disruptive that the auditions are stopped and all the other dancers just stare at her like she's insane because she kept going past when the music stopped, so she leaves the stage crying. Once Drew gets the fire out, 
He climbs into the van to drive to the theater to see Rosemary's audition. He finds her running out the door sobbing, and when he learns that she never explained her handicap to the judges, he turns her around and walks her back inside. I couldn't see what he was saying. I, I tried to follow him, but... You didn't... you didn't tell him? I knew I couldn't do this. Drew very brazenly interrupts the next round of auditions as if he owns the place. I don't know why people put up with so much from this guy in this movie. He tells them that Rosemary is deaf and that the instructions will need to be spoken directly to her face if they are to be followed. He also points the speakers down into the stage to give her a better timing cue. The choreographer is very patient with Drew's instructions and begins a re-audition. Predictably, it goes much better and Rosemary is pleased to have proven herself. The specific detail of pointing the speakers at the ground reminded me of Mr. Holland's opus, which deals with conducting music at a school for the deaf, but they point the speakers at the ground and then they install lights on either mm. side of the stage as a visual reference for the music. We cut back to Drew singing the song from the booth on stage at the new club. It's intercut with footage of what looks like Drew and Rosemary getting an apartment together. Like in his earlier fantasy, Drew now sees Rosemary in the audience and slowly approaching him. Now, we cut to them having sex in the new apartment, <laughs> which feels completely unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why this is happening right now. This couldn't have just been one musical number. We had to keep cutting away to them buying an apartment and having sex. Seems weird. And are we going to find out if she got the part? No, it doesn't matter. Her, uh. sto her story is irrelevant. When Rosemary reaches the stage from the audience, Drew signs the last few lyrics to her, and they kiss as we fade to red for the credits to scroll. Voices. Some serious casting mistakes here. The pacing is very weird, mm -hmm. and the subplots are all completely dropped. We don't find out if she makes it into this dance group. What happened with the store burning down? Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what happened with that. Like, is dad going to get murdered? Yeah. What's going to happen to my brother, who owes a bunch of money to these local gangsters? Or is he going to die? And even our main story, I would have been so angry at him if i were her like when i came that out he it's promised like, to be there yeah for it. and it's just like when you get up on stage and you start doing the thing i'm just gonna be like see you later and walk out and be like mm -hmm. you told me to do this it went exactly as badly as i thought it did and i'm not doing that again yeah also the whole thing of uh you know he wants to take his record and his voice to an agent that seemed to be his goal was was to get to find representation not to continue to sing for the same mobster that you've already been singing yeah, for. Yeah, in a different club. In a different Owned venue. by the same guy. You really it's, made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have the same name on your check. It's just being handed to you by a different person. Yeah, and it's the same, it's probably a lot of the same clientele. Yeah, it's probably also a meat joint. <laughs> <laughs> because they serve sandwiches. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> voices. And I already don't care for Michael Ontkeen that much. Um I'm completely indifferent to him and this film. Yeah, I I got nothing. I got nothing to say about it. It's, it's a it's nothing. I I don't I don't I don't hate the one song, but I don't think he sings it great. Yeah, but it's only one song. There's one song and it plays three times and that's yeah. it. And and because it's so much focusing on him and not his band because he he keeps pitching his band to places like so yeah. Like, oh, you know, my my band will play for you, Mr. You know, Patterson. It's like, but but if the central story, part of the story is supposed to be you right. and you breaking away and breaking out, like it seems like it would cause turmoil with the band that you're yeah. Why seeking don't you to go drop and them. offer to be the singer for the house band? Yeah. And audition for that. Otherwise, like, 
he should he should be involving the band in more things like when he didn't make it to the audition for the dance group the whole band should have been sitting in the back row just watching her fail <laughs> they don't just don't say anything because they're not allowed to have any lines in the movie and then he gets there and he's like sorry guys thanks for watching my girlfriend audition for this dance troupe mm. oh she fucked it she did terrible <laughs> <laughs> she, she's just left crying you should go find her <laughs> we're gonna watch these other ones they're much better <laughs> <laughs> which one's your girlfriend I have no idea <laughs> one girl just fucked it <laughs> Was that, was that her? <laughs> Did she fuck it? <laughs> Thumbs not, down. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, it's, there's not much to this one. Yeah. yeah. Our director here was Robert Markowitz. This is his only non-TV movie directing credit. He also directed an episode of the second season of Amazing Stories. Writer John Hertzfeld is not Don Hertzfeld. He auditioned for the part of Drew in this. He has a few directing credits, including Two Days in the Valley, 15 Minutes, and more recently, some behind-the-scenes material for a few Stallone films. He also played Cho in Cobra. But 15 Minutes is that one with Robert De Niro mm-hmm. about the... You guys like filming all the murders and stuff that they're doing? Yeah, yeah. The music here came from Jimmy Webb, later composes The Last Unicorn. He also has a lot of music credits for uses of MacArthur Park, including for the music video to Weird Al Yankovic's Jurassic Park, because he composed that song. Right. For the singer, do you recall who sang it? Is it Neil Young? No, it was an actor who's been in a couple movies that we've covered, though. Wait, what was the question? Who sings MacArthur Park? Oh, um, uh, Art Garfunkel? Simon, Simon, Simon. Neither no, of them. Neither of them. One of those was in a, they were both in a movie. It's not a singer. Oh. It's an actor. Mm. Chris Christopherson? Who was not in Heaven's Gate, but who was in Tarzan the Ape Man and A Man Called Horse. Richard Harris? Richard Harris sings that wow. song. Wow. Oh, yeah. The cinematographer here was Alan Metzger. He also DP'd Below the Belt, which we'll cover in a minisode eventually, <laughs> unless we already did. I forget at this point. The editor was Danford B. Green. He edited MASH, Myra Breckenridge, and Blazing Saddles. We'll see his work next in Partners for 1982. Michael Ontkeen played Drew Rothman. Desi Arnaz Jr. also auditioned for this part. We saw him last as Willie in Willie and Phil. He's also Ned Braden in Slapshot and Harry S. Truman in Twin Peaks. <laughs> That's a weird credit. Amy Irving played Rosemary Lemon or Rosemarie Lemon. I guess it's I-E, so it is Rosemary. And I said it wrong for the entire episode. Sorry, folks. She played Susan. Sorry. Well, they say uh, Harry S. Truman is the is the sheriff. Oh, okay. So he's not. He's not. He's not playing Harry Truman. Footage of the president. No, it's, it's ordering just the bombing character. Japan. <laughs> Amy Irving played Rosemary Lemon. She was Sue Snell in Carrie, where director Brian De Palma introduced her to future husband director Steven Spielberg. We've seen her so far in The Fury, Honeysuckle Rose, and The Competition. Alex Rocco played Frank Rothman. He's most recognizable to me as Mo Green from The Godfather. He's often cast as mafioso gangster types. We've seen him so far as similar characters in The Stuntman, Herbie Goes Bananas, and Nobody's Perfect. Always a gangster. Barry Miller played Raymond Rothman. We just had him as Bobby C. in Saturday Night Fever, and last season we had him as Ralph in Fame. Herbert Berghoff played Nathan Rothman. We've seen him so far as Dr. Fuldauer in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and Dr. Huber in Times Square. Vivica Lindfors played Mrs. Lemon. She was Doctress at the end of The Hand. (laughs) She's also Aunt Bedelia in the Father's Day Creepshow segment. Where's my cake? (laughs) 
she was Nurse X in Exorcist 3, which I don't know if that's the nurse mm. that gets followed out of the shot. I think that's yeah. someone younger. Yeah. I always know her from Stargate. Yeah. It's like my... Alan Rich played Montrose Meyer. We've seen him now as Marty Fields in Hero at Large and Jarvis in Leo and Lori. Joseph Cowley played Pinky. He was Joey, Travolta's brother in Saturday Night Fever. We've also seen him with Amy Irving in the competition last season. Rick Kalidi played String. We saw him last as Pantuzzi in Fort Apache, the Bronx. And he's back later in Crocodile Dundee and Barfly. Melanie Masman Hayden played Debbie. She was Lila in Honky Tonk Freeway. Tom Quinn played Fat Floyd. He shows up later in an episode of Captain Power. He's in Monkey Shines, Pelican Brief, Major League Two, and most recently he was Mr. McCandless in Super 8. Tony Monifo played Ned the Enforcer. He was Lucan's guard in Just Tell Me What You Want last year, a boxer in Rocky II, and a producer on most Stallone movies, Nighthawks, Cobra, Over the Top, Rambo 3, Lockup, Tango and Cash, Rocky Five, Stopper, My Mom Will Shoot, Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, The Specialist, Judge Dredd, Assassins in Daylight. Joe Spinell's character in Nighthawks was actually named Lieutenant Monifo after this guy. Frank Lutz, or Luz, or Luz, played Bobby. He was Julian in When Harry Met Sally, and he's Langley in Ghost Town. Heidi Bohe played Driver's Girlfriend. That's the lady who says, just pay him, Bobby. This was her first film, and she was later Megan Kendall in 101 episodes of Hotel, a long-running series starring James Brolin from The People Who Brought You Airport. Bill Baldwin, not Billy Baldwin, Bill Baldwin, played the track announcer. That's the guy who goes, holy fucking shit, that horse just did a backflip into the wrong place. That's not what he says. <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, he does lots of announcer credits in titles like The Apartment, The Adams Family, Mr. Ed, Beverly Hillbillies, Day of the Locust, Rocky, and New York, New York, among many others. But they're all announcer credits? Yeah, usually. Okay. Does that mean he's actually a famous announcer for some reason? Yes. Oh. But he, he does the voices like, last time on The Adams Family. Oh. John Adams signed a treaty. Sorry. For some reason, I thought you meant like- <laughs> Different Adams Family. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of like a, a famous like, um, like uh, like sports announcer, like Vince right. Scully. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's not all sports. The, this guy. Okay. It's like more like a game show or a spectator type voice. Okay, that makes. So more, more sense. like a Rod Roddy. Whatever that means. <laughs> Raymond Sarah played track regular. We've seen him so far as Willie in Hoodlums, a racetrack owner in Arthur, and a detective in Wolfen. Later, he's Police Chief Stearns in TMNT and TMNT 2. Jose Ribello played Cuban Customer. I think that's the guy who's getting fitted for a suit. Mm. He was a hotel clerk in The Dogs of War and Girl's Uncle in Fort Apache, the Bronx. I think that's the girl that's having a baby that they get called to. Um, those are all the credits I had for this one. I think that's everything for Voices. Thanks again to Todd Masters for their generous contribution to the show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. We leave you now with a trailer for Voices. I was breaking my back every night in that brewery, dreaming of becoming a singer. So I said to myself, am I going to die a dreamer? Pardon me while I fall off my stool. His was a world of music. Hers was a world of silence. When he realizes how hard it is to live with a deaf woman, he will say goodbye. All they had in common was a dream. 
be a dancer if it's what you want. You belong on a stage. You're great. On a stage, there are no words for what I feel. MGM presents Voices, a love story beyond words. You're choosy. Cinderella don't live in Hoboken. Believe me. Remember what I said. You'll never find it. Welcome to the north side of Hoboken. Hey! How'd you like a nice, long, deep scratch? Why are you such a bad kid, huh? <laughs> because I take after you, that's why. You having trouble with your ears? You're going deaf! <laughs> I'm not deaf, but I'm seeing a girl who is. I'll come over, ring the bell. If you open the door, you do. If you don't, you don't. Come on, ask if she's got a little sister, you know? I mean, tell her I'm going through puberty. If I'm not looking at her when I'm talking to her, if she doesn't see what I'm saying, she don't hear me. Maybe we could try again. Nothing worthwhile comes easy. I don't care what you sound like. What I care about is you. And I... They spoke with their eyes. They touched with their hearts. They shared a love with a language all its own. Michael Antkeen, Amy Irving, Voices, a love story beyond words.